Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I told Beth yesterday uh, that I was preaching a sermon about her today. It's not really about her, but she figures in it significantly, and she still doesn't know how. So she's been so excited, probably not quite, quite the right word, is it? Nervous, concerned? <laughs> What'd you say? Skeptical, perhaps? I want to tell you the story, part of the story about how I met my wife. She wasn't my wife when I met her. How I met Beth Rainey. Now, some of you know this whole story, and, and I'm leaving out some stuff many of you know. I just need you to see one particular aspect of it, so a little bit of background. Uh, whether you need to know this or not, I heard of her. I had heard of her months before we met. I was told about her. I was told that at a certain church uh, in Bedford, Indiana, that also met at uh, Seymour, Indiana, there was a woman who was the most beautiful, godly, uh, single woman that a certain minister had ever encountered on his travels. She was legendary for her beauty, for her godliness, and for her uh, decision uh, to stop dating until God brought the right man <laughs> to her. It was months later that I visited that church on a Sunday night and did not meet her. Oh, but I saw her. And I'll leave the detail out that I usually include at this point, what I said in my heart at that moment. But what I really want to talk about is the, you know, it would be weeks after that that we actually went on a date. And it wasn't long after that, just a matter of weeks, certainly just a matter of a few months before we realized. We knew we were going to be together. We knew we were, uh, that God had called us together, all that jazz. But I want to focus on one Sunday. I think it was the first Sunday morning I attended this church. Maybe the second, but I was a newcomer. Not a large church, 100, 120 people maybe. But Beth was on the praise and worship team. And you have to understand, she was kind of, in many ways, the crown jewel of this church. They were very protective of her. She was there, Beth. And uh, guys, I had heard from a friend at work that every guy that came to that church just knew he had heard from God. He was supposed to marry that girl on the praise and worship team. This, this is a th sort of effect she had on people, especially guys, all right? But anyway, here's what I want you to see. This is a real simple uh, moment, but I was sitting somewhere, you know, relative to where you all are today, I'm probably sitting back there where, where Houston's are sitting. You know, that's, that's where in the room I was. And the praise and worship team enters from sort of over here. They walk up onto the platform, and Beth looks at me and smiles. And as soon as she turned her head, every head in that room swiveled toward me to see who Beth had smiled at. 
Now think about this. You're trying to grow it. Is that a way to make a newcomer feel comfortable? How do you think that made me feel? Embarrassed? Self-conscious? No. It made me feel like the most powerful man in the room. At that moment, I felt like a million bucks. At that moment, my very identity. Let me take a minute to describe who I was at that point. I am a man still of no great accomplishments. I walked in a degree of confidence as a man of faith, as a believer in God. Felt I had seen enough of the world to call myself a man of at least a little experience. I was thankful for the amazing and talented people God had brought across my path over the years, people who still impact me and in many cases impact society and the world. I was a Ray McGrath, had experience as a military officer, had no college degree, but I was well-read and could converse intelligently on a number of subjects. I was not, and still am not, naturally gregarious, but I'd learned to conduct myself with a certain degree of social grace hard worker that made it easy to find employment, employment record that made it easy to get a job, rather. I was from a good family, a family that still has a good name, and in some circles, like Rama, certain cachet. All that to say, there were a number of ways I could describe myself or identify myself, but at that moment, the moment she smiled, the moment people saw her smile at me, I was the man who was loved by Beth. And this sensation increased after we were married. I began to walk in many respects in that identity, even among my coworkers at a Walmart distribution center who barely knew me and didn't know her at all. I walked around sheathed in a mist of confidence born of the knowledge that this woman loved me. It's not like in conversation I talked about nothing else. It's not that I revealed nothing else about myself, but in the back of my mind there was always this idea that whatever you think of me, you might think I'm an idiot. You might think I'm good for nothing. That you should meet the woman who loves me. Your whole view of me would change. And even if you think I'm great, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait until you meet Beth. I'm not being facetious. I'm not exaggerating. When we got married uh, and returned, uh, back, I returned back to work after a brief honeymoon, uh, just wearing that ring, that ring felt like a holographic projector that just shined Beth's image everywhere I went. And please understand, please understand this. This is not the trophy wife mentality. It wasn't me strutting around thinking, you should see this woman I got. You should see this, this chick I landed. I must be great because, after all, look who I got to marry me. Eat your heart out, boys. Well, there might have been a little bit of that. No, it's really almost the opposite of that. It was much more like her love had produced a greatness in me. And I want to walk and act and live in a way that justifies the love she has for me. 
And with that, maybe you see where I'm going. If you could look at Psalm 18, verse 35, David writes this. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Now, this word gentleness has been translated, uh, depending on what version you might be looking at, it might, say, it might say, your help has made me great, your kindness. Uh, but the best translation is, is probably what Young's literal translation has in there, which says lowliness. Or uh, another one might be humility. But I'll tell you, the best single word probably that captures what David is saying here is condescension. Your condescension has made me great. In other words, the, the fact, the truth, that the creator of the universe would condescend to love me, focus his love and help and power on my behalf, that has made me great. David the king was indeed great, but he knew where his greatness came from. Never do you read anything uh, like David saying or writing that God saw my greatness. God saw me and knew which horse to bet on. He picked the winner in me. No, David surely had a heart for God. But he knew that without God's favor, God's empowering, God's condescension, that he was nothing. In other words, his faith was in God, not in his personality, not in his gifts. His faith was not in his own faith. Now, let me tell you why I'm pursuing this topic. As I was reading over the last few weeks, you know, in the weeks leading up to Easter Sunday, I was rereading the resurrection scriptures, and I came across a passage, this is familiar to most of you, uh, in John chapter 20. It'll begin in verse 1. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now when that passage first caught my eye, I was a Ramah student. And I say, when it caught my eye, that doesn't mean I had never read it before. doesn't mean I had never heard it before. There are, uh, I've spoken to a lot of people over the years, especially a lot of ministers, uh, and especially when we're talking about parental issues and kids uh, who will say their kid came to them and said, uh, Dad, Mom, I was, re- I was listening to this speaker so-and-so was talking, and they said this, and they quote some scripture, they quote some truth, and they'll say, have you ever heard of that before? Have you ever thought that? And the parent, uh, whether it's a minister or not, will say, have I thought about it before? I've told you a million times that same thing. How can you say you've never heard it before? You've heard me say it from the pulpit. But they hear it for the first time. Now, it could be it just takes a different voice. They need somebody else speaking into their lives. It could be, as we've spoken before, you have to hear a truth a certain number of times before it clicks. And that just might be the time it clicked for them. 
All that to say, Dad may have talked about this before. I know I heard a, one of my Raymond structures, uh, instructors mention this little detail on the oblique, but something made it, uh, something finally grabbed me when I, was, when I was a Raymond student. You know, John wrote this. We're reading in the book of John. It's because it's John's account of the gospel. And we know, and we'll show you why if you don't know, we'll, I'll show you why a little bit later, that the disciple whom Jesus loved is, it's John. John is writing about himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And even, here we are, the part we just read, why is it so important to record who got to the tomb first? And the way I, what I concluded and what I have heard since then is, this is just a great example of how John is just as human as everybody else. This is just kind of a cute detail. Oh, the, the girls came and told us the stone was rolled away, so Peter took off, and then I took off too. And by the way, I got there first. The other disciple outran Peter and came first to the tomb. It's just a... It's a I like it from an apologetic standpoint because it's not a necessary detail, but it, it adds a sense of realism to the, to the account we're reading because if I was first and I was writing this account, I would want you to know I got there first. Would you? He just couldn't resist the temptation to let everyone know that he was the first witness to the empty tomb, except he wasn't, was he? By his own words, who was the first witness? Yeah, Mary. It doesn't say she just saw the stone rolled away. She came back and told them the body's not in the tomb. She was a witness to this. And for that matter, if he were all about securing his primacy of place among the disciples, at least in terms of discovering the resurrection, why include the following detail in John 20, beginning in verse 5? And he, stooping down and looking in, speaking about the disciple Jesus loved, speaking about himself, speaking about John, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, <laughs> went in also, and he saw and believed. Now listen, I know I'm not combating some major heresy here. These are details, and we have to be careful about making too much of them. I know there's, it's not like there's a major movement out there that is claiming John was trying to glorify himself or present himself in a super positive light. It's usually just an observation. So, but I think we've established he wasn't throwing in this detail particularly to lift himself up as the discoverer of the empty tomb. He's reporting it as it happened. However, he does do this. He does repeatedly refer to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Which strikes me as just a little bit self-serving and arrogant. Maybe. In John chapter 13, verse 23, Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. John 19, 26, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. We just read John 22. Uh, in John 21, 7, 
Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. And in John 21, verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And just in case by this point there's still any doubt that we're talking about John, uh, in verse 21, chapter 21, verse 24, second to last verse in the book. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Referring to the disciple that Jesus loved, he finally tells us in verse 24, and by the way, that guy I'm talking about, it's the guy who wrote these words. It's me. Five times he refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. And we know also that Peter, James, and John were the three disciples who were considered the inner circle. What I want you to see is that John is not attempting to elevate himself above Peter or James or anyone else. Good heavens, John wrote the book on love. Have you read his epistles? All he's doing in this resurrection passage is to show how it went down. The disciple whom Jesus loved has nothing to do with his rank or preference, or anything like, uh, like it. it. It's simply an expression. Actually, if you read it right, it's an expression of his humility, his love and his humility. Just as David wrote, your condescension has made me great. John is foregoing identifying himself as anything other than the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not the only disciple Jesus ever loved. John is the one who calls Lazarus. He refers to Lazarus in in that account as he whom you loved. In other words, he's not distinguishing himself as the disciple who Jesus loved, but rather subordinating his identity, his gifts, his rank, to the single primary point, this single primary point, Jesus loves me. And I think we can get that. Even if you didn't have an experience like I did, uh, like I had with Beth, and I hope you had an experience like that, not with Beth, but with, uh, with, uh, with uh, your own spouse. We get a taste of it. Even when somebody who is admired pays us just a little bit of attention. In its crassest sense, this is what makes politicians successful, at least at the grassroots level. It's why they spend so much time time pressing the flesh, shaking hands, kissing babies, or they used to kiss babies, you know? Parents would tell their kids, you may not remember, but when you were a year old, JFK kissed you on the cheek. Greatest president we ever had. Just because of a personal interaction. When somebody we think a lot of pays attention to us, we feel like the most important person in the world. But with Jesus, it's different. For one thing, he is above all, above everyone. With Jesus, it truly doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of you if you know that he loves you. Bad to the bone. That's exactly how you feel when Jesus loves you. Was that you? Who was that? That's you. Oh, figures. (laughs) On the day I was born. I don't know that song. 
Never heard that song before. <laughs> anyway, Romans 8.31. <laughs> wow. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, use your head for a second. Is anybody against us? Yeah. Now, we know we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities powers, right? But can we also recognize that there are those in our society, some of them in the halls of power, who are against us? Of course there are. But does that mean God is not for us? No, what's this verse really saying? It means in practical terms, if God is for us, what does it matter who is against us? What possible difference could it make? What do I care what an atheist intellectual thinks of my faith when I know God? If Jesus loves me, who cares who hates me? If Beth loves me, and she still does, what do I care if every woman in the world hates my guts? Still love me, right? I really, I heard amen from everywhere except, no, I'm kidding. And look at the verse that immediately follows this one, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Oh, man, this is where the whole concept, this whole concept of knowing who loves you really speaks directly to our faith in God's promises. You know when it says God so loved the world? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We read that, and it's not 100% incorrect, but it's not normally the way we read it. We read, we, and we speak this way today. Oh, we don't just say, I love you so much. We say, I so love you, or I so love this place. Uh, and it's not saying really that God so much loved the world, or he loved the world so much that he did this. He's, it's really saying this is how God loved the world. God loved the world in this manner. You want to see what love is? Here's how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. Still, the thrust of that verse is God's great love for us. He loved us in that way because he loves us that much. And this is the stunning part. You probably know this already, and I know it already, and I still find it stunning. He loved us that way because he loved us that much, and he loved us that much while... Say it for me. While we were yet sinners. <laughs> Probably needed that. And I don't recognize that song. This is crucial. Listen, people are arguing more and more, or at least continuing to write more and more about how working for God, expending energy and effort to please Him, serve Him, etc., are unnecessary because the life of faith is the life of rest. It's all about resting in God. But that truth really only applies to earning salvation. If we see 
our service to God, our work for God, our efforts for God as uh, justifying ourselves, then of course we are wrong. We start from the position that God already loves us and we believe and trust in the finished work of Christ that he has already saved us. You catch this? Our starting point is we know God loves us. And if we trust in the finished work of Christ, he's already saved us because he loved us. But we can't expect to be taken seriously if that knowledge, that very security, doesn't affect the way we live our lives. I've spoken about how I felt wearing that ring to work shortly after Beth and I were married. And my conduct on that job and elsewhere after that was not about what I could do to make Beth love me or even to make her love me more. This was the truth that elevated me. For Beth so loved Scott that she married him. That was my starting point. It's already done. I can't earn my marriage from her. It's, she had given her hand to me in marriage. But if I love her, and if I appreciate the magnitude of that gift, I will live as a man who is married to her and conduct myself in a way that honors her and demonstrates to her and to others how much she means to me. It's not enough for me that Beth knows how much I love her. I want you to know how much I love her. It's not enough for me to know that God knows how much I love him. And this is what I hear. Why aren't you doing this? Why are you doing this? Don't you love God? God knows I love him, even though I do these things, even though I don't do these things. And you know what? You might have some degree of love. It's important that this is how God loved you. He gave you everything. How are you loving God? Secretly? Apologetically? Is it not important to you that the world knows how much you love God? I don't know if I gave, uh, if I turned this verse in, so you might have to listen unless I can get to it quickly. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. Galatians 5, 6 says, For in Christ... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now, there's a twofold truth here. And I want us to see it through the lens of ministry. You remember, we spoke not too long ago about the truth that every Christian is a minister. Remember? And on one side of the coin... And perhaps the most obvious one is that if I'm to minister effectively, if I'm to work effectively, I must work and minister in love. I mean, love has to be my motivation. You remember when we were doing the gifts of the Spirit or the series on the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. What is he really writing about here? He just talked about here's how to do the gifts. Uh, make sure you don't under, that, that nobody is elevated among anybody else. God's purpose in you is not to make you stand out with your giftedness. Uh, and I show you a more excellent way. And then he writes the love chapter, and his whole point here in the context of, ver- of chapters 12 and 14, chapter 13, is saying this is the best way 
to measure what you are doing, how you are serving, and how you are walking in your giftedness. What is your motivation? If you're doing it in love, it will have this effect. Faith and the gifts of the Spirit, by extension, work when love is what is driving us. Love for those we are ministering to. The other side of that coin is that our faith is rooted in the truth that God loves us and that God loves the people we are ministering to. When God gives you a word of knowledge, a word of prophecy, he is not doing it to establish you as a prophet, but to deliver a needed word to a person or a congregation that he loves. When he works a healing through you, it's not doing that to launch you into a healing ministry, but to heal someone that he loves. I can minister healing, miracles, whatever the situation calls for, knowing that he will withhold no good thing, no gift from me, because he loves me and because he loves the person or the people that I am ministering to. This will, I don't know if I'll get to it next week. I'm going to try. I, I, need, I still need to deliver a couple of messages on church life and ministry. But this is really, you will see when we get to it, sort of the foundation or the underpinning of church life and ministry. And it's why doing these things in the context of a church is a very safe thing. And it's why Jesus came to build his church. I may have shared this with you, and I don't want to paint with too broad a brush in saying this is a, this is a concrete truth, but this is a man uh, who I have a great deal of respect and admiration for, who uh, um, began a, a ministry that is still, you know, it's, got, it's, it's, it's not worldwide or anything like that, but it's doing a lot, but his name is nowhere attached to it. And he had a friend, a colleague, say to him, I'm so glad you didn't name your ministry. And then he said this guy's name. Because when you, there, there's always a risk there. You know, many of you know, uh, uh, my, one of my all-time favorite ministers, one of the greatest apologists who ever lived, and I still quote his stuff, I still read his stuff, I still value his stuff, but he ended in the worst possible way. Not the worst possible way, but one of the worst. Things that came out right after his death have pretty much destroyed his legacy as a man. And unfortunately, uh, what a lot of people don't know is his ministry had a very deep bench. Some excellent, excellent ministers working under that. Unfortunately, the name of the ministry was this guy's name. And I've wondered often, if he didn't make it about him, if it didn't have this one single name, could the ministry have gone on? perhaps still been impacting millions of more lives. I don't know. I'm saying it's, it should never be about us. I understand people got to make a living, and God certainly does call people into occupational ministry, but there's such a risk, I think, we run when we talk about this man has been called to be the healer, the prophet, come here, the man, the woman who does this, who does that, rather than simply being motivated, motivated by love recognizing that God loves us, recognizing that if he loves you, he will use me to demonstrate his love for you, and that, but that should work all the way around. And we do this in the context of the church and lift up the name of Jesus rather than my name, your name, or anybody else. Okay, 
I'm, I'm wrapping this up, and to prove it, praise and worship team, you can slowly make your way up here. All I'm saying is I am imploring you. Lay aside your accomplishments, your achievements, your worldly success, your reputation, your possessions, your popularity, anything else that you cling to that you feel means you are valuable and worthy. Lay them aside if they are your identity. All of it is nothing compared to Christ and his love. In fact, let me read this quote by Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge, some of you know, was an English soldier, a World War II spy, a celebrated journalist, and a relative latecomer to Christianity. And his life is really worth reading about. But he said this, I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. I love my wife, and I am still daily grateful that she condescended to marrying me. But one of the things that I adore about her is that we share this conviction. Compared to Jesus, she is a clear second place. Clear in the sense that nobody else comes close to being second but clear also in the sense that Jesus is by far in first place when it comes to my loyalty and my affection. Beth elevated and elevates me in very real ways, but she does not compare to the manner in which I am elevated by Christ. When I walk around, I want his light to shine through me, even to people I don't know, even to people who don't know who he is. You know that? Remember when I told you I walked around, felt like I was just shining Beth's light? And people didn't know, they barely knew me, and they didn't know Beth at all. But that's what made me shine in that, in that small sense. There might be people who just, you've heard this before, and probably has happened to many of you. People will just come up in the midst of something. They're just getting to know you. What is it about you? There's something different about you, and it's a good thing. I want to walk through this life with that same overwhelming confidence. This sense that if you just knew the person who loves me, it would change your whole opinion about me. It would change your whole life. If you don't know God like that, he wants to be known to you like that. And he demonstrated that desire and willingness to be known like that when Jesus died on the cross. For our sins. This is not a time for playing games. Do you love him? Do you know that he loves you? 
And have you surrendered to his love? Have you surrendered to his purpose for your life? If not, why on earth would you not do it today? Are there other needs in your life? Do you understand that he desires to meet those needs? That his stated will is to freely give us all those things. Whereas you and I might think, I already gave you the best thing I had. How could you ask for more? God's attitude is, I already gave you the best I had. Why wouldn't you ask for everything else? This other stuff's easy. This other stuff's little compared to the fact that Jesus died for you. I'm not going to withhold any of it from you. So I've got a couple of invitations. I'm asking you to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior this morning if you haven't done it. Stand up with me if you can. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.